are entering the Freedom Hut. The Mueller report is out. I've read it. Guess what? No collusion. No obstruction. Exoneration for the president, but no exoneration for the deep state coup against him. We will dig into that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The special counsel's report states that his... Quote, investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. I am sure that all Americans share my concern about the efforts of the Russian government to interfere in our presidential election. As the special counsel report makes clear, the Russian government sought to interfere in our election process. But thanks to the special counsel's thorough investigation, we now know that the Russian operatives who perpetrated these schemes did not have the cooperation of President Trump or the Trump campaign. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. No collusion, no conspiracy. The report is out. I have been rummaging through it all day. It is a somewhat exhausting and and frustrating Uh, procedure to get through as much of this as I have. But we knew what the baseline, fundamental, foundational conclusions were. And none of that changes. The president of the United States did not, nor did anyone, and this is very important, nor did anyone associated with his campaign work with or offer to work with the Russians to overturn or or undermine the election results. None of them. It did not happen. This was a conspiracy theory without evidence. This was an effort at a soft coup by deep state actors loyal to the permanent branch of government known as the federal bureaucracy and to Hillary as the Democrat candidate who represents the party that most affiliates with and is supported by the deep state elements of the federal government, the Democratic Party. And now we know that this was all a lie. We were put through two years of hell as a country here. This insane effort to create the president as traitor narrative will hopefully now finally come to an end. Although I have to say, I don't even know if we can count on that. I don't know if we can really say definitively that the president of the United States will no longer have to deal with those lies because the people who are currently supposed to be the the guardians of our republic, the people who are supposed to be telling us the truth about what's happened here, the truth about their own reporting, don't think they did anything wrong. The press is patting themselves on the back 
in this whole situation. The press seems to believe that they've managed this whole thing beautifully. Oh, just give them some more Pulitzers. That's what they do anyway. They just give themselves awards to talk about how wonderful they are. Now the president finally can look around and say, can you stop with the crazy? No collusion, no conspiracy. The fundamental reason, the, the very underlying justification for this entire investigation was wrong. The main media narrative for the last two years about how that there are any moment now they kept putting people on TV, Brennan and Clapper and this whole slew of so-called national security experts, imbeciles, all of them on this, saying that there was going to be collusion, we were going to find collusion. Wasn't true. This was a lie. There was no effort to conspire with the Russians. The Russians cooked up a social media disinformation campaign on their own. The Russians hacked some emails. They did some stuff here and there. Obama knew about it and didn't really talk about it, didn't make a big deal of it, because you know what? And you can't lose sight of this. They all assumed that Hillary was going to win anyway because it wasn't that big a deal. It didn't really matter, and they knew it. But then when Hillary lost... They couldn't accept that reality, so they invented a new reality. Oh, my gosh, the Russian interference in the election was just so powerful. The Russians were spreading some disinformation on the web. Who cares? Now we're told that this is meant to prevent the next round of, you know, the next round of uh, Russian interference. Like, it's just, this is nonsense. This was always about getting Trump. They're lying to you today. This was always about getting Trump. This wasn't about, if it were Russian interference in the election, you could have just had a normal DOJ investigation. The reason for the special counsel was that they wanted to get Trump. The reason that, and this is a very important point, it's central to what we have to still find out, the reason that they did not tell the Trump campaign that George Papadopoulos passed along a rumor to some guy at a bar in London. This was That's the beginning of all this? This is crazy. But the reason they didn't tell the Trump campaign that that had happened, that this was going on, and there were concerns about Russian penetration of the campaign, was that the people making these decisions in the federal government really believed, at least some of them did, that Donald Trump was a Russian asset, that Donald Trump was working with the Russians. Why do they believe that? Rumor mill. Just kind of heard it from some other people. They should be so deeply ashamed of themselves. They profaned. I mean, all these senior FBI guys and DOJ guys, they profaned the offices and the authority that they have as part of this hyper-partisan scheme to take down the president of the United States. This is the biggest political scandal of my life. The media got it entirely wrong. They approached it all from the wrong angle. It was the spying and the collusion between senior government officials, the media and the Democrat Party that should have been the focus of this. Not this make-believe theory that the Trump administration worked with the Russians on this, which I've been telling this from the start. I'll never forget when President Trump looked me, looked me in the eyes and said it himself. It's a stupid plan. It doesn't even make any sense. 
If the Russians were going to do this, why would what would the Trump campaign bring to the party? Nothing. There's no reason. If the Russians wanted to sow disinformation about Hillary, they can do exactly what they did, which is get access to information that makes Hillary look bad. But the information doesn't even make her look that bad. All this is, we're supposed to lose all sense of proportionality, all sense of judgment and intellectual fairness because you have to suspend all of that in order to come up with the most damaging narrative possible for Trump and that Hillary was robbed and they stole the election from Hillary. But ultimately, they can't get around this. No conspiracy. It did not exist. It was not there. Mueller, who was sending dozens of Guys, look like a police platoon, like they were going in after senior Al-Qaeda leadership when they arrested Roger Stone. They locked Manafort up in solitary confinement for months on end after a no-knock raid on his home early in the morning. They you know, sent George Papadopoulos to prison for a couple of weeks for lying about a total non-issue. They didn't give anyone a pass, no one the benefit of the doubt. Mueller and his people and Weissman and the rest of the squad of angry Democrats we're dead set on taking Trump down on this conspiracy issue with the Russians, and they couldn't do it because it wasn't there. And remember, it's not that they couldn't prove it, my friends. They couldn't even mount a serious case to bring to court. They couldn't even come up with charges, and not just charges against Trump, charges relating to collusion or conspiracy, and now we have to use these terms interchangeably, there were no conspiracy charges involving the Russians in the election with anyone in Trump's world. This is a very high bar that had to be cleared. There was always the possibility, in fact, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, told me this, that there were concerns. Well, what if some guy did pull a kind of Papadopoulos-like situation where he was freelancing and thought he'd be some kind of a hero and reached out to the Russians and said, how can I help you hack in? And maybe gave them some proprietary information or something like that. And that could have happened, but it didn't happen. It's not that we still are asked the question, maybe kind of, sort of, yes, no, maybe so, about conspiracy with the Russians. It is definitively not the case that Trump or the campaign worked with the Russians. It did not happen. Attorney General Barr has said, after two years, this is where we are. Play clip two. The special counsel did not find any conspiracy to violate U.S. law involving Russian-linked persons and any persons associated with the Trump campaign. So that's the bottom line. After nearly two years of investigation, thousands of subpoenas, hundreds of warrants and witness interviews, the special counsel confirmed that the Russian government sponsored efforts to illegally interfere with the 2016 presidential election, but did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. Did not find. After all this, Mueller wasn't just shaking the tree. He was cutting it down with a chainsaw trying to get answers here. He went after everybody, ruined reputations, threw people in prison, set loose this team of overzealous prosecutors on anyone in Trump's world. No collusion, no conspiracy. There was no Trump cheating in the last election. It did not happen. 
And this, don't, don't let them change the subject. This was the central allegation. This was the central accusation leveled against the president meant to undermine his entire presidency. They have been dragged through hell and back based on lies concocted by left-wing pro-Hillary partisan Democrats, by a media apparatus that is corrupt beyond belief, that has no ethics in its journalistic approach, and that view themselves as activists, not as purveyors of objective truth. I don't care what they say. They know that they're, they're trying to win for the hashtag resistance against Trump. They know it. But now you have the other questions that remain, as I was reading through. There's really a report in two parts. There's the whole Russia collusion part of it, which I'll have some more thoughts on, but I just want to start with that's the single most important thing, the single thing that we cannot lose sight of, because that is what they told us was central to this entire case. But now you have obstruction. Oh, yes. Now now we turn into this more gray area, amorphous, and this is where the Democrats are going to try to launch their case for impeachment against the President of the United States. It's, it's, it's exactly what I said was going to happen yesterday. I predicted this, not surprising. I think a lot of folks who are paying attention predicted this pretty accurately. But on the, on the question of obstruction, I have very, uh, very important, very specific thoughts on this. I will come back to them right after this break. After finding no underlying collusion with Russia, the special counsel's report goes on to consider whether certain actions of the president could amount to obstruction of the special counsel's investigation. After carefully reviewing the facts and legal theories outlined in the report and in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel and other department lawyers, the deputy attorney general and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. No obstruction of justice. Now, the media that got this wrong and the Democrats are saying, well, there's not exoneration either, but that's not the standard that our criminal justice system works under. This was a criminal investigation Although there was no underlying crime for the investigation, which I would argue, and I think many others do as well, really largely invalidates this entire process. Uh, that this was all meant to be a get Trump operation from the start, which we, we knew it was. We have been, you and I have been correct on this from the very beginning. But then they figured, well, if we can't get him on the collusion, we'll get him on the obstruction. They didn't get him on that either. Now they're going to say, however, that there was ample evidence. It's just that there could not have been a prosecution of the president under obstruction uh, because of the way that Mueller wrote up this report. And let me say this. For Mueller to take the position that he will not take a position is dirty politics. That's all it is. This is dirty pool, and everyone knows it. Mueller and his whole team spent two years to basically give us nothing. Nothing that we really care about with regard to Russian interference in the election. We already knew about the Russian interference election. Nothing with regard to the president or any of his top people involved with Russians in a way that makes us uh, sit up and show legitimate concern about something that happened because it didn't happen. And now on obstruction. Here's the, here's the very simple 
overview of what's really going on with obstruction. The president of the United States was the top or was the subject and the target of a witch hunt. And he did not like that. And when you are an innocent person and law enforcement officials for obvious reasons of politics come after you and everyone around you trying to ruin you, trying to destroy you, you tend to get upset. And when you are the leader of the free world, when you are the president of the United States, the commander in chief, the head of the executive branch, and you have a country to run, and you know you haven't done anything wrong, you did not collude with the Russians, your people did not collude with the Russians, this was all a fairy tale, although a very damaging, very destructive one. Yes, you get mad. You say things like, how do I make this end? Where do we go to make this thing stop? But the the analysis I'm hearing today from people about how, oh, well, innocent people would never say this or an innocent person would never, that, that is complete crap. Trump had to sit through after winning an election that is so improbable in terms of what the predictions were and what we're told the numbers were that it's almost hard to believe even at this point that he's the president of the United States. But Trump has had to spend two years with this just massive lie being used as the as the primary tool of opposition against his administration. And he's supposed to sit there silently. The Mueller report goes through his public statements, his public pronouncements. You know, he, you know, all these different aspects of what the president has said about the investigation. It goes through in detail the firing of James Comey. It talks about uh, General Flynn, the national security advisor, what happened all around this. And I mean, ultimately, what you have is the president lashing out because he was cornered by this deep state coup and had to fight his way out of it. So I'm sorry, but I don't really care what Mueller thinks about how the president was taking the ambush that Mueller's buddies set up for the president. We'll be back in uh, just a moment with more on that. We've got to dive deep into obstruction. Stay with me. The special counsel indicates that he wanted you to make the decision or that it should be left for Congress. Special Counsel Mueller did not indicate that his purpose was to leave the decision to Congress. I hope that was not his view, since we don't convene grand juries and conduct criminal investigations for that purpose. Uh, He did not, I didn't talk to him directly about uh, the fact that we were making the decision, but I am told that his reaction to that was that it was uh, my, my prerogative as Attorney General to make that decision. It is the prerogative of the attorney general to make the decision and bill barr made the right decision here but that the the press is trying to call him of course a, a tool of trump a hack let me let me be very clear about this there is nobody in the role of attorney general it is not possible to find a human being to be the attorney general at this time that the media and the democrats would accept if the attorney general did not hand down an indictment of the president of the United States. No one would be acceptable because Barr is gold standard level AG material. He's already been the attorney general. He's well-respected in legal circles. No serious person thinks that Barr is unserious. But you're already seeing 
all these Democrats and different pundits going on TV. Oh, Barr is, you know, he's Trump's, uh, you could say, wingman. Remember, I think I think a previous attorney general referred to himself as, as a different president's wingman. Remember when that happened? But they're trying to undermine Barr, even though the press conference, they were complaining about the press conference, that it was before the report came out. Meanwhile, the press conference was meant so that people could understand what's in the report and what they're being presented with and to give it some context. Those who were saying that there's spin, I kept hearing, oh, there's spin, there's, there's not spin. He's saying, this is what we're giving you. And these are the findings. It, it, it was as, as neutral and straightforward as a lawyer, I think, could possibly be on this. And that's what, you know, Barr was in the, in the role here of top lawyer for the country. And this idea that the Congress is the one who should make the decision, and that's what we came into with that soundbite, that's just insane. No one takes that position. That, that does not make any sense. Why would the Congress be left with that role when that's not the role of Congress? Congress doesn't, doesn't have a prosecutorial, a prosecutorial function to play here. And what are they really going to do? They're going to say that there, there wasn't even enough to bring obstruction charges. And note that also by the special counsel's own admission, there are questions as to whether you really could even claim that there under any context, you could claim that some of the acts that Trump took were obstruction because of his constitutional authority. The president can fire the FBI director. He can do that. He has the right to do that for any reason or no reason. So how are you going to claim that that's obstruction when he's allowed to? Uh, there are other areas as well where I think the the Mueller team was stretching to the limit to the limits of credulity in order to just leave open enough space for the uh, Democrat media avalanche to just flow in and and fill in the blanks with whatever they want to say about all of this. The decision was not to be left to Congress. It's not Congress's decision to make. It was really Mueller's decision, and he wouldn't make it. And he wouldn't make it because it wasn't there. He didn't have it, but he didn't want to say that on obstruction. So what did he do? He created this whole, well, I don't know. Let's leave it for Attorney General Barr. And Rod Rosenstein, who, I mean, today I I was at the Hill. I was talking to a bunch of Democrats about all this different stuff. And I was hearing how, well, you know, Rosenstein, one of the uh, Democrats that came on said Rosenstein should have recused himself. And I just practically, you know, choked on my tongue. Rosenstein. So now now Rosenstein is insufficient for the left. There was a time when the president removing or impeding Rosenstein was the the DOJ equivalent of like Pearl Harbor. It was the worst thing that any human being could possibly do. Now we're told that Rosenstein, yeah, Rosenstein probably should have recused himself, actually. But Democrats were opposed to that the whole time and would have reacted with an insane level of, you know, outrage if you had removed Rosenstein. I mean, that would have been a complete, from their perspective, a complete catastrophe, totally unacceptable, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. And now they're saying, oh, maybe Rosenstein should recuse himself because they didn't get the outcome they want. When they don't, when Democrats don't get the outcome they want in this process, what do they do? They say the people are the wrong people. They're they're Trumpers. They can't be trusted. They attack the integrity of people like Bill Barr. Attack it just because they didn't get what they didn't get what they wanted here. Um, but Barr has also 
been a thorn in the side of the media recently because he is very good on his feet. There was a, a fantastic uh, moment when Barr slapped down some r- reporters for a, a brief Q&A after the press conference that set the tone for everything today. But here's what happened when they asked Barr about whether he was protecting Trump. This is what they're saying, play seven. Um, Mr. Attorney General, it's not just Democrats who have questioned some of the process here. A Republican appointed judge on Tuesday said you have, quote, created an environment that has caused a significant part of the American public to be concerned about these redactions. You've cleared the president on obstruction. The president is fundraising off of your comments about spying. And here you have remarks that are quite generous to the president, including acknowledging his feelings and his emotions. So what do you say to people on both sides of the aisle who are concerned that you are trying to protect the president? Well, actually, the, the statements about his 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 uh, sincere beliefs are, for, are, are recognized in the report that there was substantial evidence for that. So I'm not sure what your basis is for saying that I'm being generous to the president. You face an unprecedented situation. It just seems well, like there's a lot is, of effort to say, to, to go out of your way to acknowledge how this Well, is there, is there another precedent for it? No, but it's Okay, so that. unprecedented is an accurate description, isn't it? I love that. You went out of your way to, you know, be so nice to Trump by saying it was unprecedented, but he goes... Is there a precedent? No, there's no precedent. So it's unprecedented. (laughs) That's like, but this is what you're dealing with. The media, they're like a bunch of little idiot children running around. They don't know anything. They don't even think through what they're saying. I don't even know who that reporter was. I can't tell by her voice. Whoever it is, she just knows attack bar, attack bar. That's her job. Her job is to attack bar. It's not to get to the truth. It's not to find useful information. It's do a little bit of grandstanding for your left-wing producers back in the studio and for your left-wing audience on whatever network she or whatever publication she represents and attack Barr's credibility by saying he's protecting Trump by saying that this is an unprecedented situation, which is a completely objective and factual description of the situation. But see, if, if objective and factual in any context, benefits Trump, then objective and factual information itself cannot be trusted, you see? This is the degree of craziness that the Democrats are living in. This is the degree of insanity that they have created for all of us to have to deal with. I find it just beyond words that anyone in the media could think that they have done a good job on this, that they have handled this whole thing well. Um, there were so many people. I mean, there there are best-selling left-wing authors who write books, who've written books recently with titles like Proof of Collusion. This is wackadoo stuff. This is nuts. And the speculation in the media was all meant to add fuel to the fire, right? This is what the media doesn't understand. By running stories every night about like, oh, this person, and having all these analysts that go on TV say, oh, I'm very sure there's going to be collusion, very sure there's going to be collusion, no opposing voices on CNN, no serious doubt brought to bear in their reporting, lots of fake news stories, lots of stories that have to be retracted. All of them are anti-Trump, by the way. That's not a coincidence. And they think that that, just constant drumbeat of undermining the president, suggesting that the president of the United States is a traitor. 
that now they can just walk away from that because the president was kind of angry about this whole situation and thought about firing Sanctacomi before he fired him or whatever it was. Play clip five. There was relentless speculation in the news media about the president's personal culpability. Yet, as he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. And as the special counsel's report acknowledges, there is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents and fueled by illegal leaks. Nonetheless, the White House fully cooperated with the special counsel's investigation, providing unfettered access to campaign and White House documents, directing senior aides to testify freely and asserting no privilege claims. And at the same time, the president took no act that in fact deprived the special counsel of the documents and witnesses necessary to complete his investigation. Not only, and this is what Barr is telling it's so important, the president not obstruct this investigation, didn't use bleach bit, didn't destroy, you know, phones and servers with hammers or phones with hammers, didn't try to erase 30,000 emails. Not only did Trump not do that. The Trump team, the Trump White House, the president himself gave more than what was required in terms of sharing, waived executive privilege, said you can. And they could have very well said, no, we're going to claim executive privilege over the following things. And that would have been completely legitimate. But this was very open, very transparent. Barr didn't have to even share this report with anyone. It could have been an entirely secret report. Obviously, the politics of that. Would have been difficult, but it, it it was would be legal, would be within the guidelines, would be within the system. You know, we're always told, don't undermine the system, don't undermine our, you know, our institutions. That's what they always say. But the president, attorney general, they received no. There's no credit from the other side for this because it was never about this. Is this is what? If if you get nothing else from what we've seen here, this was never about getting the truth. This was always about getting. Trump. This was always about revenge for Hillary's defeat in 2016 and for the rejection of the elite leftist ideology that Hillary represents and that in a post-Obama America, a lot of Democrats thought was the unbounded future of this country with without without any real opposition without any you know it was going to be Hillary for 8 years because their side had won their belief their ideas had won turned out that was not the case and they could not handle it I have more on the media reaction to this and also my friend Sean Davis from the Federalist will be joining uh to talk about what he sees he's a guy who gets very deep in the weeds on this report and has been getting deep in the weeds on all Mueller reporting, stretching back to the very beginning of this whole fiasco. So we're going to have a really interesting conversation with him. And then we've got later on the show some updates on where the Democrats are in the field. And uh, you know, I've got some thoughts on in the aftermath of the Notre, Notre Dame disaster for you. A lot of things. So we're going to not just do this topic for the whole show, I promise. But we got more on this coming up. And they're having a good day. I'm having a good day, too. It was called... No collusion, no obstruction. I'm happy. 
There never was, by the way, and there never will be. And we do have to get to the bottom of these things, I will say. And uh, this should never happen. I say this in front of my friends, wounded warriors, and I just call them warriors because we just shook hands and they look great. They look so good and so beautiful. But I say it in front of my friends, this should never happen to another president again. This hoax, this should never happen to another president again. Thank you. And yet I worry that it will, unless there's a real effort to get to the bottom of this. I worry that the Democrats view this whole thing as, in some, in some sense, a limited victory for themselves. Because while they didn't prove any of this because it was all a lie, they did manage to slow down the administration, to use this as a tool of opposition, to grind away at the president and his allies with this mess, with this disaster of an investigation that even though was unsuccessful in the end, really did punish the administration because the process, as I always say, the process was the punishment. They were hoping for more, but they certainly got some degree of punishment out of this in this entire situation. But if we're looking for the media to have any honesty about this, we are going to be looking for uh, a very long time. This is just a, a collection of some of the things that you were hearing today from the so-called guardians of our republic who just next weekend at the White House Correspondents' Dinner will be celebrating themselves. A bunch of self-deluding, self-loving, self-loathing nerds all gathered together in one place. Play 10. That is the cardinal rule. You do not brief the White House on criminal investigations before that information is public, let alone a criminal investigation Wait, into the president himself. But he's been exonerated. Yeah, sure. Of course he's been the exonerated. Attorney General exonerated. Even, even, even though the report says he's not exonerated. Choosing to do this press conference, using the word spying, briefing the president's legal team on this, I, I, you know... And so the difference between Barr and Jeff Sessions, I think, is that he was going to be a, truck, a lackey of the president. It turns out that... <laughs> this attorney general is. I don't know how many Senate Democrats thought that they would say that they, they missed Jeff Sessions. It, it, I mean, they, they aren't even pretending anymore to try to, to follow the rules. That's the thing that's so disturbing. They just don't even care. By the way, in case you're wondering what does collusion look like, it this looks it. like the attorney general briefing, this the attorney general's lawyers briefing the president before Congress right. or the public. I don't know if they're all just idiots and they don't know what the process is, but notice how they complain and say the process is being violated and then don't tell us in what way. Because they're just complaining. This is just whining. They don't even know. They're just unhappy because they're not getting the toy they want. They don't know and don't care that they don't deserve the toy, that it's not for them, that it's for someone else, right? They're little, screaming, whiny children. They don't know anything. I mean, the, the CNN eight-person mega panel that was on that, I saw a little bit of it. Uh, it was ridiculous. Not a single person up there had a word of, not, not even pro-Trump, just skepticism of the CNN claims about how all oh, this looks so bad for the president looks bad for the president. Look, the whole thing looks terrible for CNN and CNN should have to just start again from zero from scratch and actually become a real news organization. That's what should happen here. I have Sean Davis joining me in a couple minutes and he's going to break more of this down team. We have so much more show, so stay right there. So one of the most important things that we should all take away from Mueller report day got our friend Sean Davis, who has been digging deep into the details of this report, 
all day today, as well as for the last two years when it comes to all things Russia collusion. He's a guy who actually reads all the things that are released from Capitol Hill and looks at the footnotes and does research on them. So someone that we really do need to talk to here. Sean Davis is co-founder of The Federalist, thefederalist.com, one of my favorite websites. Also a website that happened to get all this Russia stuff right for the last two years, which is which is nice. They got that going for them. Sean, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. So what what are the things today you see you're like, okay, this is new. Like I've already, I've been telling folks, obviously there's no collusion, no obstruction, there's no charges. We know all that stuff. What did you see in this report that you say, oh, that's really interesting and new? Well, I think the most interesting thing, other than the fact that a team of dedicated anti-Trump partisans had two years and $20 million to dig up anything they could on collusion and couldn't find any. Like that to me, that, that's a pretty big deal. It's not like these people all went in with an open mind, you know, didn't really have strong feelings one way or about the other about Trump. Uh, you know, the lead prosecutor on this was at Hillary's victory night party, which ended up being so sad. So these are all people with, with a really vested interest in the outcome, and even they couldn't find collusion. So that's, that's the most interesting thing. To me, personally, aside from that, what was most interesting to me in the report is what was not included which was any information whatsoever about the Hillary Clinton campaign's admitted collusion with Russians uh, that helped cook up this entire conspiracy theory in the first place. Um, And it's a weird thing, given that Mueller was ostensibly appointed to investigate Russian interference in our 2016 election. So Christopher Steele is mentioned, I think, 14 times in a 448-page report never once mentions that he was also working on behalf of a sanctioned Russian oligarch, uh, was even lobbying on his behalf to a top DOJ official while all this was going on, does not mention even the name of Fusion GPS, uh, which at the same time it was working for Hillary and employing Christopher Steele, was also working on behalf of a Russian holding company uh, that had been charged with money laundering invading U.S. sanctions, namely Prevazon, and that that company's top attorney, the woman who was in this infamous June 9th Trump Tower meeting that created so much hysteria was the point person for the Clinton campaign firm that hired the spy who cooked all this stuff up in the first place. So it's super weird to me that in a report that's 448 pages about Russian inclusion, we don't get a single mention of uh, a pretty glaring example of Russian collusion that happened during the entire campaign. And I think those omissions really tell the story of this entire investigation from beginning to end. And as to the Mueller decision to, you know, and I read through the sections in the report where they talk about how they came to, to the decision essentially to not decide I found the whole thing deeply disingenuous. Like, if what, what do they think was going to happen here then? Like, how are we supposed to react to, well, we just decided we're not going to decide and let someone else decide? Well, I, I think I have to quote uh, musical and philosophical luminary Getty Lee. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. From Rush, great band, check it out. Uh, he, he clearly made a decision not to charge, not to indict, and he can dress up the decision with all the excuses he wants, which he clearly does. But in reading the obstruction section of the report, I was really reminded of how much it resembled that embarrassing press conference that James Comey did in July of 2016 over why he wasn't going to indict Hillary. So he goes up there and says she committed no crime. She did nothing wrong. We're not charging her with anything. And then proceeded to spend an hour dragging her through the mud 
in a way that made it impossible for her to ever defend herself and clear her name. And I say this as someone who doesn't like Hillary and thinks she should have been charged. But the job of a prosecutor is to look at the facts and then to make one decision. Do I charge the person or not? And to not charge and then go and completely smear someone and drag them through the mud in an unofficial proceeding where they have no way of clearing their name, it's just unconscionable. And it's why Democrats at that time were calling for Comey's head. Now, fast forward three years, and you have Mueller doing the exact same thing to Trump in his report that Comey did. And it shows just how irresponsible and abusive those two men are as prosecutors. It's no surprise that they're BFFs and that uh, uh, Mueller was Comey's mentor. Uh, so I, I read through all that. I was so nonplussed by it, so uh, unimpressed. The whole thing read to me as little more than a pretext and a roadmap to impeachment, that they knew they didn't have the juice to pull off an indictment, let alone a conviction. So they left all these little breadcrumbs and asserted things like mean tweets as being uh, a facial evidence of obstruction of justice. I, I found the whole thing absurd. Now, Weissman's obviously an anti-Trump Democrat. A bunch of the others, uh, uh, what, Jeannie Rhee, actually just heard from someone today about how in the interactions with Jeannie Rhee, how nasty she was uh, and how, how, you know, aggressive she was in, in dealing with people who were interacting with the special counsel. I thought that was an interesting side note off, off camera. Uh, but is, if someone says to you, Sean, prove to me that Mueller is an anti-Trump partisan, what, what is, your, what is your, your short version case for that? Look at the results. I mean, the, the man, I, to my knowledge, didn't hire a single Republican. The person who he picked to be in charge... Um, was a guy who was uh, hoping to celebrate Hillary Clinton's victory uh, at the Javits Center on that election night, and that didn't turn out too well. Jeannie Reed, for goodness sake, was a Clinton Foundation lawyer before she got tapped to go over to the Department of Justice. Um, and it's impossible to read through this report, both the collusion section and the obstruction, and not come away with the belief, uh, ha- having read between the lines and read the lines and read the footnotes, that this whole thing was designed and written to get Trump. And so you say, well, prove that, it was, that he was a partisan, that he was just going after Trump. The proof is in what he didn't put in there, which is nothing about the Hillary Clinton campaign's known, admitted, uh, documented collusion with Russians. Christopher Steele, this foreign spy, by the way, who was hired on behalf of a campaign, I was told that was wrong. This is a guy who in his own uh, debunked and discredited dossiers said he had gotten information directly from Kremlin officials. If that's not collusion or conspiracy to spread dirt on a political opponent to interfere with U.S. democracy, uh, then the term has no meaning. So the I've fact never, that Mueller did this whole thing is absurd. I've never gotten an explanation for this. I'm wondering if any if any libs have thrown something up in, in your in your way on this one. They keep saying, uh, "Oh, well, the Trump Tower meeting. He should they should have called the FBI right away and not and not even accepted the meeting." And I say, "Well, hold on a second. So someone says they have damaging information or political opponent." Uh, because they're a foreigner, you're supposed to say, I can't even talk to you. Meanwhile, Hillary, uh, on behalf of Hillary Clinton, as we all know, there was the hiring of Christopher Steele, who's a foreigner. I mean, the fact that he's British doesn't doesn't change the fact that he's not an American citizen. He's not. He's a foreigner working on behalf of a, of a campaign, but using Russian sources who are giving him the information. Like, why is that OK? I've never gotten that explanation. Oh, they, they don't explain it. They just ignore it and pretend it'll, it'll go away, similar to how Mueller handled it. Maybe if you just pretend it never happened, you'll never have to explain it. But it's not just that Christopher Steele was a foreigner uh, working on behalf of the campaign. At the same time, 
he was scheming with DOJ to get Trump affiliates spied on using false information. He was also working on behalf of a sanctioned Russian oligarch in Oleg Deripaska. He, in fact, kept on referring to him and his conversations uh, with Bruce Orr at DOJ as our favorite tycoon. This is a guy who was trying to set up interviews between Deripaska and DOJ as a pretext to get him into the United States since he couldn't get a visa as a sanctioned uh, a Russian oligarch. So it, there is no explanation for the double standard. Instead, the liberals and left-wingers and media just pretend that that never happened and hope that people will forget it ever did. Speaking of Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, you know, Sean, I had to do live coverage starting very early this morning and then all through uh, into the afternoon on, uh, on, on the Hill. So I missed but was seeing snippets here and there and could see the monitors in the distance CNN, were, were you able to watch some of the CNN eight-person meltdown panel today? And I'm just wondering if you could give us your 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 view of how the, the lib media is reacting to the report today overall. Um, I did I did not watch CNN today, one, because I'm like, you know, all other 330 million Americans completely uninterested in what they have to say. And number two, uh, I'm not a masochist. Um, I did see people talking about it. I saw... Several journalists, uh, Philip Bump at The Washington Post, Julia Ioff, wherever she is now, um, saying, you know what, in reading this Mueller report, I can only conclude that the American press nailed it. Their journalism was so good. That's and amazing. Just, they're, they're in a different reality. I mean, the, these are people hanging around at Jamestown, uh, ready to gulp some Kool-Aid, waiting for the spaceship to come down. They're completely delusional. Uh, they have more in common with delusional cultists than they do with actual purveyors of fact and reason. And their entire behavior today has been a complete embarrassment, both to them personally and to their profession. The the uh, other part of this that really stuck out to me today was we really we know now beyond uh, beyond any any reasonable doubt, I think you could say that this whole FBI investigation, at least according to the FBI and according to the Department of Justice, was started because of George Papadopoulos, that this this uh, pretense that a guy who is peripherally kind of tied to a presidential campaign, who is mouthing off about something that was widely rumored to have happened and people had known for a while that there was some hacking that had gone on, that they would start this whole investigation and then based on what Papadopoulos had said, feel like it must go all the way to the top, Sean, because otherwise, why didn't they tell the Trump campaign, you got a guy who's running around saying crazy stuff, we're worried the Russians are going to exploit him, right? If it was a real counterintelligence investigation, they should have warned the campaign. But they use this as an excuse to pretend like Donald Trump must be the one giving the orders. That's exactly right. And, and we're going to eventually find out that this, uh, just th this claim that nobody in Trump world was being investigated, that the entire thing didn't start until the FBI got wind of this conversation in London. That's a total lie. Uh, it, they, they may have not started a particular investigation with a particular name on it um, uh, until Papadopoulos' uh, conversation was transmitted, uh, but they were investigating Trump people long before then. And so I think it's important to step back and look at what was happening in 2016. They used this kind of nonsense. They used the dossier. They used innuendo as a pretext to spy on the Trump campaign. That was the insurance policy. They then used the intelligence they collected and the information they collected from that campaign uh, to cast doubt on the legitimacy of Trump's election. Th this was the execution of the insurance policy. Then when, they became pr uh, when Trump became president, they used that information to force the recusal of the attorney general so they could again take things over 
and hold Trump hostage. That's what the whole uh, Trump meeting about the dossier on January 6th was about. It was about making it impossible for Trump to take control of this agency um, from the people who were waiting on Hillary Clinton to take it over. And then finally, the Mueller investigation was a pretext under uh, this justification of it being a counterintelligence program to eventually get rid of the president for obstruction. That, that's, that's what happened. It's not even debatable anymore. The facts are clear. There was an attempted coup on the president. It failed. It failed twice. It failed uh, prior to Comey's firing, and it failed with the Mueller investigation. And sadly, nobody on the left is ever going to let it go. They will take it to their graves believing that Trump was a Russian spy who stole the election from Hillary. Sean Davis of The Federalist, everybody. Follow him on Twitter and uh, check out thefederalist.com for his latest and all the other fine writers over there. Sean, excellent work on this one, sir. Thanks for making the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Team, we'll be back with a whole lot more. CIA and Intel agencies have become bastions of liberals, I see, is the headline here on the Drudge Report today. We're discussing all things Mueller and looking into what what was the basis, not just for this investigation, but how did so many people get this so wrong? You got this piece here by Bill, Bill Gertz with a subtitle, The Former CIA Analyst Says Agencies Dominated by Liberals... He could be talking about me, folks, but he's not. But you all know I have been saying this for a long, long time. Uh, John Gentry, however, is the guy who's named in this piece. He spent 12 years as a CIA analyst, criticized former senior intelligence leaders, including CIA Director Brennan, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, former Deputy CIA Director Mike Morrell, along with former analyst Paul Pilar, for breaking decades-long prohibitions of publicly airing their liberal politics uh, in attacking Trump. I, I got to tell you, it, it's it's more than that, though. It's more than just these guys. There is now an institutional bias. I'm telling you this. I have many friends still on the inside. They know this, too. There is an institutional bias in the federal government toward the left. The federal government donations for federal government employees in the last election, I think it was over 90% went to Hillary Clinton. So when you think about this in terms of votes, if you have massive institutions, which the federal bureaucracies are, with a tremendous number of people, as well as a whole lot of power and sway, because they're the ones who are implementing government authority day to day, especially at places like DOJ and FBI, if 9 out of 10 overall, now I don't think it's 9 out of 10 of the FBI, but if 9 out of 10 across the federal government are little Hillary bots, that is really meaningful. And that's really troubling because it means that there is a similar bias at work in the federal bureaucracy and especially in the federal national security apparatus, as you would see, say, on a college campus where 9 out of 10 professors are super liberal. So I, I do think that this is a much bigger problem. And, and one of the reasons that you see this happening is that to get a job at a place like the CIA, to get a job at the place like the uh, DOJ, the FBI, you tend to have to have advanced degrees and degrees that come from institutions uh, that already lean very left. And so this is the, the prophecy coming true of if, if the campuses are overrun with leftist professors and leftist groupthink, the people that are coming out of them, especially those who have spent additional time 
through their advanced degree programs, getting a master's in international relations, getting a master's in journalism or getting a, you know, these kinds of things. Although I guess usually you don't, but some people get master's in journalism. Look at Ben Rhodes, Obama's national security propaganda director for, uh, for the, for his white house. He was a creative writing major. So some people do have some, some funky degrees, but the era of Trump has only has exposed this. It's been around for much longer than that. I mean, I can tell you that the only people in the CIA who ever whine about the hatch act are a bunch of whiny liberals. People who are more conservative leaning in the federal bureaucracy are much less quick to point to kind of petty rules about politicization because for one, we're just not, we're just by nature, conservatives are not a bunch of little whiny tattletales. You know, being a whiny tattletale is very much a characteristic of the progressive left. They're like, hey, he did this. He said this. He tweeted this. Get him in trouble. They love to do that. You know, let's start a boycott. Let's get this person fired. They love that. Uh, that's just that's just culturally and, and psychologically the profile of a leftist tends to line up with somebody who's a whiny loser and probably a, an incel. Uh, but yeah, that's right. They also are the ones that always complain about Hatch Act and politicization because they know that they dominate these institutions and they'll never be held to account for it. They'll never be told that they're overly political and what they're pushing or what they're doing in the office. Uh, because they've got the conservatives so outnumbered. So the the State Department, for example, is just overrun with leftists, just just chock full of leftists. And you should know this because it's not just a problem for Trump. It's going to be a problem going forward for a long time. We need ideological balance in the federal bureaucracy the same way we need ideological balance on college campuses. And that's going to have to be an active process. And the first step is awareness of what's going on. I'm just wondering what it would take for there to be some soul searching from the media. I mean, I, I, I honestly am just just curious at this point what would have to happen for the media to finally admit that they got this whole thing wrong. I mean, you had you had the MSNBC panels melting down today. You had uh, Nicole Wallace going after Barr, saying that he made excuse after excuse for all this stuff, uh, that that they're that he's Mueller's man. I mean, they're maligning the current attorney general specifically because the attorney general refuses to go along with what they've done here, which is a deep state coup to undermine and destroy a presidency. I mean, it's it's completely and utterly unacceptable, and yet they think that they've done a good job. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't imagine what's going on. I can't imagine what's happening in the minds of anybody who works in any of these newsrooms, anyone who is who is a, a journo out there, uh, and and didn't actually go along with this whole Russia collusion thing. They must think that their peers, that the other people that are involved in this whole process that the, uh, the other um, journalists that they've been working with have completely lost their minds. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of people that fall in this category. I do know there are some, however, I do know there are some individuals for whom this whole Russia collusion. In fact, one of the more entertaining things that I've seen is that you have uh, Glenn Greenwald, who was a very far left guy. 
Uh, but he's been running around saying that this is crazy. Uh, he's been running around saying that the journalists should be ashamed of what they have done here, ashamed of it. And he's right. At least he's taking the perspective of what really matters in this profession. And it's a profession that we, we are told and often reminded by the journalists themselves has real implications for American society, right? I mean, we are, we are told that the journos are the, the firefighters, so to speak, of our democracy. And yet when we ask for accountability from them, when we start to say, hold on a second, uh, is, is there some way that, you know, we could at least come to some accountability on this? They say, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You know, accountability, that's just crazy. That's just, we, we, we can't have accountability for what's happened here. But how can they demand so much respect? How can they demand so much in the way of public acclaim and then not be held to account for what they've done? Not have people say that this was so damaging. And it's not just a function of damaging politically. I mean, you know, this is a presidency that was unfairly and unjustly forced to fight for its life for the last two years. And now that we're being, we're being told that there was no collusion, now we're being told that we, we aren't allowed to give the president any slack in fighting back. It's, it's the pushing back against the lies that's the problem, you see. I mean, this is straight out of the Soviet playbook. This is a, a stunning a stunning departure from the way that all this is supposed to work, right? I mean, the, just the fact that Mueller took the presumption of, of innocence and, and eradicated that all along with it, with the way the investigation was conducted and the way they're going after people, prosecutions all along the way, this indictment drops, that indictment drops, all this meant to muddy the waters around Trump. But then it, when all said and done, and at the end of the day, when it's finally time to stand up and do the right thing and be clear about the declination decision, which means the, the declining of bringing charges. That's all he has to do. He won't do it. Won't do it. I mean, others have been pointing out today, I think this is a, a very important observation, that with Mueller, it's clear when you read this report that they were desperate. I mean, desperate to do everything they could to take down Trump. I mean, this was the anti-Trump dream team that was assembled of people that were ideologically, personally, professionally invested in the, in the destruction of this presidency, in the destruction of President Trump and all those around him. And even with that arrayed against him, they weren't able to do it. And now they're saying, oh, but I mean, I can't believe some of the stuff. Maggie Haberman from the New York Times I saw saying, well, he didn't fire Mueller, but he, but he tried to fire Mueller. Well, no, if he tried to fire Mueller, he would have fired Mueller because he has that constitutional prerogative, first of all, and he also could just fire him. There's, there's no real, you know, this is why when you, when you get into the corruption component of this or, or the corrupt intent component, which is necessary for the obstruction charge to be leveled and to stick in a court, the president is the opposite of an obstructor in this case. The president shared so much information that he did not have to share. 
and the the press still clings to the narrative. They they cling to this this transparent lie that first of all they were on the right side of this or they knew what was going on all along and they somehow uh, now are vindicated. I mean the press's claims of of vindication surrounding this are just 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 completely bonkers. Uh, I think the media will never really recover from what's happened here. I think the media will never really be in a position to look any American that was paying attention to what they've done over the last two years and say, oh, yeah, that's right. We know what we're doing here. Um, we, we, we're we honest. I mean, they, I think they do know what they're doing. What they're doing is acting as the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party and the left. And this was their moment. I mean, you, you have to keep you have to keep in mind that an entire uh, I was going to say an entire generation of journalists, really, uh, the boomer journalists. Now, all the people that are, you know, 50s, 60s, into their 70s, um, I guess are, are boomers in their 50s. But, you know, that that range of journalists. So they're at the at the pinnacle, those who are still working. Uh, they're at the pinnacle of, you know, the pyramid over at CNN and Fox. I mean, uh, not not Fox, the CNN and MSNBC and, and all these places. And they've grown up with this. The greatest thing that journalism ever did was was destroy Richard Nixon and get him to resign. You know, that's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of journalism. And they clearly saw this. And and, it, and it's almost like they took out the playbook from Watergate and tried to replay it piece by piece. They had former Watergate people that were coming on TV trying to always compare this to Watergate. This was supposed to be their Watergate moment. The destruction of a Republican presidency at the hands of the press. The crowning achievement. And you, 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 you have to keep in mind that now for those Democrat boomer journalists, they have been deprived of two things. Many of them feel like they've been deprived of two things that are essential. Essential for them to feel like their careers have really reached their peak and worthwhile. One is the coronation of Hillary Clinton, who is the, the ultimate, you know, uh, feminist glass ceiling breaking left wing Democrat made into the president, right? That was what was going to happen. So they were deprived of Hillary's coronation and they're also now deprived of their Watergate moment. So they're very angry and very bitter. And this is going to translate into some horrifically nasty bias that will uh, be the defining, defining characteristic of the media, I think, going into the uh, 2020 election when it comes to Trump. I mean, the stuff that they're going to say about this president, the only good thing is this, you know, they've said so much that wasn't true and they've gone to such a crazy, such extreme lengths to try and defame and destroy this president that most people who don't have Trump, Trump derangement syndrome, most people who aren't overcome with emotion at the thought of Trump winning perhaps a second term, uh, you know, emotion in a bad way, like they have to cry and scream at the sky. Um, those people recognize that they say this stuff about Trump all the time. It's not true. It does, And it just doesn't matter. They have been crying wolf every day for over two years. I mean, you just become numb to it after a while. Everything Trump does is a crisis. Everything Trump says is an atrocity. You know, he's literally worse than Hitler. This has become... It's, it's incapable, actually. I mean, you, you can't. It's impossible to parody this because it's so absurd. You, you can't out absurd the view that 
the Democrat mainstream has propagated about the president of the United States. And that there's just, there's not even a recognition of that from the press today. I mean, they're, they're pretending like, oh yeah, we've got it right all along, is completely wacko. But that is what we are dealing with here. I mean, I, I have been watching everything that's going on in the, um, uh, you know, the different media outlets that I can see. I mean, I was, I was on Fox tonight with Brett Baer, which was obviously fun. Sorry, I didn't have more time for it, team, but... They snuck me in at the end. Believe it or not, I'm able to run out sometimes, do a hit, and come back and do radio. <laughs> so how do I do that? Ninja moves. Um, but I, I definitely have some ninja radio TV moves I have to pull out. But I did manage to get in there and, and throw my two cents on the table about what today really means. And here's what we just, you have to, you have to just hold this tight, you know, keep this up against your bosom at night when you're thinking about, I mean, do we all have bosoms or is that just a lady thing? I think we all have a bosom. John, do we all have a bosom? Doesn't everyone have a bosom? Right, yeah, b bosom is, is it bosoms? Yeah, bosom buddy, exactly. Cling to your, your bosom this, this uh, truth. There was no collusion. Obstruction is a stretch and a, a fantasy for the left. And ultimately... Justice has prevailed. The cost has been high and it has not been without downside, but justice ultimately has prevailed here. The president has won after all the stuff they've thrown at him, after the Mueller and the angry Democrats and the deep state soft coup, all the stuff that they tried so much, um, so often. And I just, it's... It's amazing in a sense. It's amazing that Trump has been able to withstand all of this. I don't I don't know if he didn't if he wasn't Trump, I think he would have this would have cracked another person. They wanted to lock him up. They wanted to lock up Don Jr. Whatever happened to those stories? I kept hearing about how Donald Trump Jr. lied under oath. Media was repeating this all the time. All the rumors they're going to lock up Don Jr. Oh, they didn't bring any charges against Don Jr. In fact, it makes it's made clear in the report itself that Don Jr. You know, there's no charges to bring because he didn't break the law. Is anyone going to give him an apology? Anyone going to apologize to Donald Trump Jr.? I don't think so. Because this served the left's purpose, was to smear the president's son. They wanted to ensnare his family. I mean, nothing was sacred. Nothing was sacred to the Democrats in this process other than power and their lust for it. We'll be right back. There is no serious person out there who would suggest somehow that you could even, you could even rig America's elections, in part because they're so decentralized and the numbers of votes involved. There's no evidence that that has happened in the past or that there are instances in which that will happen this time. That was President Obama three weeks before the 2016 election. This is just, I, I know we've been talking a lot about the report. Look, it's Mother Report Day. It's a big thing. And next hour, we got some other stuff coming your way. So don't, don't think. I'm going to talk to you about the Notre Dame Cathedral. I have some thoughts on that. Also, I want to do a little in memoriam for a uh, a teacher of mine who just passed away, and you know that will obviously not be about the Mueller report. Uh, and something on the measles outbreaks across the country. So we have other topics that are are slated for you uh, coming up here shortly. But I I just want I want to say that one part of this discussion that seems to always get lost is that the whole notion of the Russian interference having an effect, like being something that we need to be concerned about is just 
completely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Meaning, okay, yeah, we can investigate Russian interference and, and tell the Russians to knock it off, but that any sentient being would take the position that Russia buying, uh, maybe a, spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on Facebook ads. I mean, a U.S. presidential election is a massive, multi-billion dollar media fight that is in, involves hundreds of millions of people in this country who have, you know, the, views in many cases that they've been thinking about or developing for, for decades. And they're saturated with all these different, all the messaging from our culture, from our political ads, from our news and, and information services that are out there. And you think that some Russian bots here and there may make any appreciable difference in this? I mean, this is what, I, what I've said to people recently is, you know, this is like if I walked up to a billionaire and I gave a billionaire a dollar bill on the street, it would be a true statement for me to say, I've made that billionaire richer. And I could walk around saying, I've enriched this billionaire. He is a wealthier man because of me, folks. That's right. I've made this billionaire even wealthier. And I'd sound like a lunatic, right? I'd sound like a crazy person because no one, no one would think for a moment that the $1 I gave this person who has a billion of them makes any difference in any way, shape, or form. That's essentially what Russia did here with their whole interference in the election. They did some Facebook ad buys. They re released some information about Hillary and Bernie. I mean, Hillary was looking at, at Federal Espionage Act charges, for heaven's sake. And she did it. I mean, she was guilty. And they, you know, if you weren't done with Hillary over that, trust me, uh, you weren't going to be done with Hillary because the DNC, we already knew the DNC was in the tank for Hillary. People were openly talking about it. So, you know, you can never prove this one way or the other. And that's why the left clings to it. The whole Russian interference in the election. But any person who's being reasonable, reasonable and rational would have to say that this is silly. I mean, it's it's been absurd from the beginning. It's not even a good plot to try and steal the election. Today, I got very tired because I had to do, I think I did like six hours of different live coverage interviews at the Hill. I did Fox and Friends this morning, obviously a three-hour show, and then I did uh, Brett Baer's show. Uh, it's been a very, you know, day of a lot of media stuff. And I, I said, I stumbled on my words at the Hill, and I said that it's a bad strategy. And I think, you know, it's almost like mixing strategy and tragedy. And that's what the Russia collusion narrative was. To it's a bad strategy because it's just a strategic tragedy. It makes no sense. It's, it's a terribly stupid thing to do. You're going to put yourself in a position where, and this was, how did I know that they're from day one? How did I know this Russia collusion thing was a fairy tale, was nonsense? Because it never made any sense. It never held up. Even if you believe the president was evil and a traitor, which obviously I don't. It's not even a good plot. So that's how I knew. And I was right. And the rest of the media was wrong. After 800 years, we were the steward of this iconic representation of Western civilization, Catholicism, Christendom. And of all years, 2019, at the height of our sophistication and technology, we were found wanting and we didn't protect this icon and we don't build them anymore. There's great churches and cathedrals that go up all over the world, but they're in Poland, they're in Cairo, they're in the Ivory Coast, they're in Brazil, they're in India. It's almost as if the places that are less affluent without the technology of Western Europe and the United 
United States are like we used to be. They still believe in transcendence. They still believe in something other than this world. And so it's going to be very hard in our society to ever build a cathedral again, much less to repair them, because we, we don't believe in what they represented. There's Victor Davis Hanson, I think, making some really astute points about why the Notre Dame fire was so emotional for so many people. I mean, yes, it's, as I said the day of, it was like watching some of the great masterpieces in one of the great museums of the world, whether it's the Uffizi Gallery or uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Louvre, watching them just burn in real time. But also, why is it that whenever you talk about the truly incredible and beautiful structures of Western civilization, you are really pulling from centuries past. Why is it the case that we don't make something like a Notre Dame cathedral anymore? Why don't we have that same desire? We certainly have, we have better technology than we ever have before. Uh, we are we are more capable in building. We are more capable in marshalling resources. Yeah, I, I can't think of a time uh, in this country. I can't speak for all other countries, but I can't think of a time when there was something underway, construction underway that was that was truly timeless and and beautiful, and that was meant to be you know for all time a structure that was a house of worship, a house of God. You just don't see that happening the same way. And I think it's worth asking the question why that is. Why is it that when you go to Europe, for example, and you say, I, I want to see the great cathedrals of Europe, you're generally looking at things that have been around, or I mean, almost entirely, I think you could argue, have been around for centuries. But you're not going to find anything that was built 10 years ago. And that is truly awe-inspiring and, and amazing. We, we, have, we have technological marvels now. We have engineering marvels. But our technology is not being used for that transcendence, for that desire to connect this world with the next world. I think that, in fact, our, our technological prowess has started to intrude on that part of the, of the mind and really that part of the, of the soul that seeks more in our day-to-day life, that would that would like there to be manifestations of the eternal here in this world. We, we just don't, we don't have that. At least I don't see it in society. I don't see this around us. You know, one thing, you know, I, I live in a part of D.C. where there's a, there's a very beautiful Catholic church nearby, but it's quite old. And, and all of the particularly beautiful churches that I know of uh, are quite old, and they've been around for a long time, and it's not like we've just recently, or rather, it's not like we've forgotten how to build stone structures. It's not, you know, people might tell me, oh, Buck, but there's so much expense involved with this, and well, we're so much wealthier than we used to be as a society as well. I mean, the, the, the French government is so much wealthier than it was at the time of the, the construction of something like a Notre Dame Cathedral. Where is that impulse, that desire to make something that is truly spectacular so that people feel an elevation of the spirit when they walk in. All of the most incredible structures, all of the most incredible things 
that you see in Western, in, in the countries that we think of as Western civilization are very old. You know, when I say incredible, I, I mean those that inspire a belief that there's something, a, a touch of the divine in them. Yeah, I know you could say Bach, but the, the modern, uh, the modern marvels, which I think is the name of a show on Discovery or History Channel, you know, the marvels we've created, look at the, you know, the Empire State Building and skyscrapers, and but th those are engineering marvels. They're not built to create a, a feeling in people who enter them or who see them that this world is not the only world and that there can be something else beyond just steel and load-bearing walls and functionality. I mean, I think we've become aesthetically in the West, prisoners of a kind of functionality. I think we're, I think we are obsessed with the convenience, not just the convenience of the phones that we carry around in our hands all the time now that completely run our lives, but the the convenience of, you know, the elevators that go super fast and the the doorways that are are you know large enough to meet all the fire code needs. And I mean, th this is what we do all the time. And functionality certainly has its place. I'm not saying that we should try to build. You know, the pyramids all over again, that would probably be a, a waste of time and resources, right? There's, there's a, one of the reasons that we so revere ancient structures and buildings is because of how incredible it was that they were built in that time. And when you think about 800 years ago, Notre Dame, you're, you're involved in that building project. Uh, this is before, this is before the, the printing press. I mean, this is before, <laughs> way before the, um, Discovery of electricity, although I guess in a kind of dark irony, it was, I believe, an electrical fire that took down the roof and the main spire of Notre Dame Cathedral. I think it was just a minor renovation uh, glitch where some there was some electrical spark and that was all that it took. I'm, I'm reminded also of how in the in the Fountainhead, which is a, a book I know people have. I'm not, uh, not going to get too into Ayn Rand. I know people have very very strong feelings on on her and her work in both both directions uh, but there is this uh, slamming of the of the the poor aesthetics and the the elimination of you know true genius in in architecture and i i think that we now have forgotten that there is this part of us that sees buildings and structures as more than just a place to put things and do things that they can be artwork in and of in and of themselves and they also can be portals to the divine for many of us and i know you've had those of you who are listening you've had this feeling you've walked in i mean i've walked into notre dame i've walked into uh, some of the other great cathedrals in france and and uh, some of the churches in uh, the great churches and cathedrals in basilicas and mausoleums of, of Italy. Uh, I remember walking into the church of St. Francis of Assisi in, in Assisi, and there is something of a, of a transportational effect. You're, you feel transported into another era, into another uh, realm when you walk into that church. And we just don't have that anymore. And, and I don't mean to beat up on uh, the... The, the small neighborhood church that obviously doesn't have the incredible resources to make stained glass windows and all. And I'm not saying that at all. I do think that we spend a lot of money now and, and a lot of uh, religious 
structures in this country seem to be much more concerned with making sure that there's ample parking and air conditioning and less concerned with is this a place that that the very the the, the physical reality of it has its own aspirational intent it's a fancy way of saying i do think that we end up going to a lot of things that look like a costco in this country but really it's supposed to be a house of worship i understand the prayers and the relationship with god are the most important thing and you lift up your your voice and praise of god through song and that matters more than you know whether you hit the right notes or not even doesn't matter what matters is what's in your heart i i understand all of that and i'm not I'm not trying to get too deep into the theological side of it. I just mean from an architectural and aesthetic side. I think Victor Davis Hanson makes a very important point that we could use more of that aspiration to what is so beautiful that it's a reminder that there must be a God. And that's what the great cathedrals of Europe do. That's what the, uh, the great works of Christian art throughout the centuries that's what they that's what they really do this is why when you go see um the the pieta for example michelangelo's pieta which i've I've seen uh in in real life you see it and you're a little awestruck for a moment that's the purpose of it it's supposed to be so beautiful that it is more than just the skill of the sculptor it's supposed to be so beautiful that you think to yourself there is something more here than just you know, feeding ourselves, staying alive as long as we can. If we're lucky, maybe getting to reproduce and then just turning into dust. There's something more than that. And whether it's a building or a painting or a sculpture that can have that effect, I think that that's something that needs to be uh, celebrated. I think that there's something that we, we need a, a restoration of that. I mean, I, I'm here in Washington, D.C., and, and you can tell the... The architectural sense in D.C. is meant to evoke Western civilization stretching back to ancient Greece and the kind of grandeur of the federal government and the seat of the government here. And and there, this is all very intentional, the way that, you know, whether I'm not even just talking about the monuments, I'm talking about many of the, the government buildings themselves. You know, there's a lot of columns, there's a lot of, this kind of neoclassical architectural decision decision making, and and that's not just because they thought it looked cool. It's because they're trying to show us something. It's a reminder of what our roots are, what our heritage is as a as a as a civilization. Really, it does does stretch all the way back to ancient Greece and and Rome and the Judeo Christian roots of all of what we see now uh, throughout or all what we have seen throughout Europe and, and in the new world too. So I, I, I know I don't usually talk to you about architecture and the philosophy of architecture, but there is something about the, the near destruction of Notre Dame that's a reminder that we could build things that are mu- more beautiful, and I don't think that that's a superficial thing. I think that we should try to bring back that divine aspiration in the buildings that we, we construct. All of us have had those teachers in life, I, I, would, I would guess, I would wager, that had a profound impact on more than just your ability to learn in that subject, but the way that you thought about maybe an entire field or maybe how you, you thought about yourself. 
ways that you you grew as a person as a result of that teacher bringing the best out of you, seeing skills and ability that perhaps others quickly overlooked. I always remember um, a man at St. David's, the uh, private Catholic school that I went to growing up in New York City, named uh, Bill Ryan, uh, William Ryan. And my older brother, I think my little brother had him as a, a teacher as well. Uh, but Bill Ryan just had, he created this whole world of, of learning and history and stories. This was in the, in the fourth grade. He loved baseball and he loved the Bible. He would tell anecdotes from, uh, from history and then intersperse it with talking about sports teams. He would sling starbursts around the room to people uh, with, with reckless abandon. Sometimes just because he was in a good mood, he would throw you a starburst. Or if you got a, a tough question right, he would just reach into this little cupboard and throw you a starburst. Uh, I was always partial to the red starburst, but also the lemon starburst was pretty good. I would even eat the pink ones, even though I wasn't particularly a fan of them. But Bill Ryan also read the Lord of the Rings trilogy to us. Um, he would, well, first The Hobbit and then Lord of the Rings. And in doing so, got us all used to understanding story as a necessary part of, of history and of our learning. And he was just an incredible guy. Played classical music constantly in the background when, we, when he wasn't giving a lecture. If we just had classroom study time, he would put on Tchaikovsky, he would put on Prokofiev, Mozart, Beethoven, uh, and, and just you never forget that kind of an experience at a very young age when I mean, he created this whole, this atmosphere of, of a love of history and, and an understanding of why you need to know the stories that come before you. And, and there was just something in the way that he would talk about whether it was ancient Greece or ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. We did a lot of ancient history, some medieval history. And it was obviously at a fourth grade level, so we weren't going that deep into the subject matter. But he instilled an appreciation in me and I know in many of my classmates that uh, stays with us to this day. Well, there, there's another teacher very much like that that I had in high school, although he had a, quite a different and, and more, uh, I think you could say, serious, austere approach maybe, but was a, a truly brilliant guy and was a very dedicated, um, very dedicated instructor of young men. And his name was John Connolly. He was a teacher at Regis High School uh, for 52 years, okay? He taught at my high school for 52, that's five two years, which is astonishing. Um, he received a lot of awards from the school for this, but, you know, John Connolly who wore a fedora and a kind of trench coat all the time as he come into the school, was a man of a tremendous learning and tremendous ability and talent and really expected everybody to show up ready to go all the time. He was a big fan of the pop quiz, but also somebody who every time he would lecture, you got the sense from him that, uh, that he never had enough time because the subject matter was something that if he could, he would spend the rest of the day talking to you about it and making you learn more about it. And, um, you know, he had his, his funny his funny moments. He used to claim that whenever he handed out our exams or tests back to us, that all of a sudden he, he learned this new word, would you get? And which was, would you get? Because everyone wants to know what somebody else got that was sitting next to them. But would you get? 
Uh, and he, he told his fair share of, I think, what you'd call relatively corny jokes, but he did so in a very, very serious tone. I think he had you know, a, a handful of advanced degrees, including in history, and he was the first person who ever taught me economics. But anyway, John Connolly has passed away, and uh, it, I just think it's remarkable that he taught it at Regis High School for 52 years, and I just got word of this from my little brother yesterday. Um, but he's up there in the in the pantheon of great instructors that I have had. Uh, there are a number that, that really stick out. I mentioned Bill Ryan to you at the beginning from St. David's, John Connolly from Regis High School, Professor Hadley Arkies from Amherst College. Uh, these individuals really mattered in my life and the lives of many other people. And in the case of, of each one of those uh, teachers, I could tell you, Folks who have studied with them, who have gone on to very prominent roles in all different walks of life, public sector, private sector. Uh, so it really matters. And so while I'm one that occasionally gives a bit of pushback on the, oh, no one works as hard as teachers and, you know, the teachers unions and all that stuff. Uh, I'm somebody who also deeply appreciates truly great teachers. And, and John Connolly at Regis High School was was one of them. So I just wanted to give him a, a short tribute here on the air because. I had him for at least two of my four years in high school. Um, so he was somebody I spent a lot, of, a lot of time with and studied with him. I think I had three courses with him over the years, maybe two courses. Uh, but 52 years teaching the same high school. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it, folks? Um, I know that he would say, Deo et Patriae, and uh, God bless John and his family. And we'll be back in a moment. Measles are making a comeback. This is something that should really concern everyone. Uh, this is a disease that had been in America largely, almost entirely eradicated because there is a very, very effective vaccine against it. There have been a number of pretty high-profile um, cases in the last few weeks of measles outbreaks across the country affecting uh, hundreds of of people, and this is raising a lot of questions. One that I think we, we don't ever get to talk about, and there, there's no interest, it seems to me, in addressing the following proposition. We have a number of people who are showing up every day at our southern border who come from countries, and when I say a number, I'm talking thousands a day, about 100,000 a month, who come from countries where they do not have the same vaccination and vaccination protocols that we do. At what point are we allowed to say that this poses a health risk to the broader U.S. population? Now, for anyone who says that this is unfair, it's unseemly to talk about illegal aliens in this way, I would just point out that they're already forced at the border, meaning our Border Patrol has to segregate the uh, population of illegal aliens coming in by infectious or communicable disease. There are people who are separated out because they have had uh, different forms of influenza. There are people that have uh, lice and scabies. And, you know, you start to break this down. And in particular, I believe in McAllen, Texas, they've had these facilities for a while where they put people who have a, a serious or infectious disease that is a is a real health concern. I think that's legitimate public discourse and the government's unwillingness to even say that this is a concern or rather the media and the Democrat Party pretending that this is 
rooted in something other than a concern for public safety and public health just shows you the lengths of the dishonesty that they're willing to go to here. Uh, measles is not something to mess around with. And I see that there's a story about an El Al Airlines, that's the Israeli airline, El Al Airlines stewardess, who came down uh, not long ago with measles and now has been in a coma for 10 days and cannot breathe because she uh, needs a respirator. I mean, she cannot breathe without a respirator. So the MMR vaccine, which is a measles, mumps, and rubella, is 97% effective. Uh, one dose alone, uh, that's for two doses. One dose is 93% effective. And a lot of people now are deciding that they're not going to get these vaccinations. You know, there have been 329 confirmed cases of measles in Brooklyn and Queens just since October. And these tend to be in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in the New York City area. New York has declared a public health emergency as a result of this. Um, so it's, it's not, I'm not saying that it's just from our southern border, but these outbreaks of measles uh, show us that we have to be concerned about public health issues that involve vaccinations and large numbers of unvaccinated individuals coming across at the southern border is a legitimate public health concern. I mean, the, the government can or the media can pretend that there's nothing to see here and that nobody should should care about this or give it a second thought. But I'm telling you, it will be much worse if, in fact, we reach some kind of a, a pandemic stage, whether it's a form of influenza that's incredibly uh, lethal, which has happened in the past, folks. This is not just wanton scaremongering. In the 20th century, the Spanish influenza epidemic killed millions of people around the world. A normal flu season kills many, many, many thousands, tens of thousands of people around the world. So it's not unfair to think about these things. And I, I just, I worry about the trust that the American people will be able to have in their government if it comes to pass that we have had a lot of Americans put in jeopardy and might even start losing people because the government was unwilling for reasons of political correctness to say that a massive number of unvaccinated people coming across the southern border, among other ways that unvaccinated people come into this country, is a public health risk and needs to be understood as such. Government's supposed to protect our security and safety first and foremost, and that includes at the southern border. We'll be right back. It's time for Roll Call. Team, it's been quite a day today, I must say. I am looking forward to getting to the weekend here pretty soon. As my friend Reggie, a.k.a. Reg, says at the Hill, Thursday is really just Friday Junior. So tomorrow I'm hoping that we're going to be able to have a little bit of a deep breath moment after this whole Mueller report, bombshell situation, all that stuff, and just chill and enjoy the weekend a little bit. I mean, you have to take yourself out of all this stuff. Ultimately, and maybe this doesn't benefit me because I do a talk radio show mostly about politics, 
But ultimately, none of this really will affect your life all that much. <laughs> so I can tell you that. You can take some comfort in knowing that the fact that the deep state coup was a, an obvious effort to undermine the election, they weren't successful. And at the end of the day, we all got our own problems to focus on. So that's the happy side of things, I suppose. Facebook.com. Slash Buck Sexton is where you need to go if you want to get in on this roll call action. All right, let's get to it. Uh, Jonathan writes, keep up the good fight, Buck. I'm an African-American. I have personally changed careers under Trump to get into an industry and made 20000 more per year under the current president. Can't argue with dollar signs. While one cannot like a man personally, results are results. I'm not sure why anyone would believe a Russian spy would want American economy at the best level in 40 years. Lunacy. Uh, Logic will always rule the weak. Stay strong. Keep them high. Jonathan. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Great to have you listening to the show. And I'm glad that you have been able to capitalize on the strong economy and move forward in your career. Some very, very important stuff, to be sure. Jeremy. I like how you said the government isn't there to ensure your failures. Life isn't fair and government cannot change that. My dad used to say all the time that equal does not always mean fair and fair does not always mean equal. There's a lot of Trump haters that are going to need new prescriptions for their Trump derangement syndrome because they're going to have a big flare up today. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Uh, Jeremy, yeah, government is not supposed to take away all of your pain. In fact, a good government protects your rights and limits the pain it inflicts on you as a result. One of the reasons why we have a government based on the protection of rights and the restraint of power, right? We are trying to restrain the government's ability to intrude on your lives is that it's usually not for openly malevolent purposes that a government takes certain actions. Governments always have an explanation for why they're doing a certain thing. And usually it's to help the very people that can be negatively affected by it, right? The government is, or, or to help other people at the expense of one group. Governments think that they're doing the right thing. That's why they do it. It is not usually the case that they understand that what they're doing is destructive and wrong and they do it anyway. They always have an explanation for it. That's why we have rights and that's why we have a system of limited government in place. Brian from Alabama. Good day, Buck. The Green New Deal. No one is bringing up the fact that of all the industries that will be devastated by eliminating cows, uh, the Big Mac or Whopper is going to be a turkey burger and restaurants in general. Many are beef central. Then there are the ranchers and also no milk or cheese, a central ingredient of pizza and Italian cooking. Then why just cows? Are no other animals flatulent? I know my dog farts. It's a true fact. And where is PETA on getting rid of cows? Not a peep from those liberals. Yeah, Brian, the Green New Deal is absurd. It's absurd. It's not that I think that it's not great or that there's some parts of it I disagree with. It, w- it is a preposterous document. Uh, the ideas that it contains are ridiculous, meaning worthy of ridicule, not things that should have to be taken seriously. But unfortunately, because the left has embraced climate change as this kind of insane religion, we have to take it seriously because they want to make us do these things. They want to make our lives more difficult with all these different uh, programs that they would put in place. Remember, just like I said before, all under the rubric of making our lives better. They don't think 
they're making our lives bad. They don't think that they're, you know, creating a more difficult situation for us. They think that they're helping us with the Green New Deal. They think that things are going to be better because of the Green New Deal. So that's why we have those limitations on government in place. Joshua writes, Buck, thanks for coming out to Talk Tank in Fort Wayne last weekend. I thought I'd give you a hand since you'll be forced to talk about Mayor Pete more and more in the coming months. His only real accomplishments as a mayor are his smart roads and uh, that are actually quite dumb. He turned the two-lane one-way roads in and out of downtown into one-lane roads to accommodate bike traffic. Now commutes have doubled in time. The residents of Indiana are known as Hoosiers. Indianian is a mouthful, and Indian isn't quite appropriate either. Oh, good, good point. My family's been here since 1803, and even we don't know where the name comes from. It's either a slurring of who's here, which you could call out if someone sensed outside your camp, or who's here, which would be asked after picking up a body part after frontier ba- uh, tavern brawls. Whoa, that's pretty intense. Uh, Hoosiers, I did not. You know, this is what usually political pundits will say. Oh, the Granite State or oh, the Hoosiers from Indiana, you know, Granite State from New Hampshire. People say this stuff because it's a little bit of trivia that makes it seem like you have some as a, as a political person I'm talking about now some connection to this state that you just flew into for the interview or to cover the primary or whatever. But yes, you're right. Indiananins is not a, not a thing, not, not an easy thing to say. Uh, let's see here. We have next up Sean who writes, question for you. If a pregnant woman has a few drinks before driving herself to abortion clinic and gets in an accident, the baby dies uh, before it can be aborted, is the mother charged with murder? I believe if someone hit her car and baby dies, they would be charged with murder. What's up with that? Well, Sean, uh, that's... Wait, if a pregnant woman has a few drinks, gets in an accident, the baby dies, is the mother charged with murder? That's a good question. I I don't believe she would be, but there are cases where a third party, not the mother kills a woman or uh, and the baby inside her and they do charge it as a double murder. So I don't I don't know, it might be up to the discretion of the prosecutor. I I'm not sure how this this case, this theoretical that you have uh, developed for me to muse over, uh how this would be handled. I, I really don't know. Andres, my man Andres, howdy buck. I appreciate your insight and recommendations. The books you know go right to my Amazon wish list. Movies, I check them out. That brings me to Unplanned. I saw it. It's a very touching, emotional watch. I can't comprehend how people find the killing of babies just something that's done. It's a traumatic experience women may or may not talk about, but as a fella, it tugs at my mind and heart. Sad stuff. Shields high. Uh, Andres, I need to see Unplanned. I haven't yet. I'm sure it's a very emotionally uh, you know, difficult to watch. And uh, that's maybe one reason why I haven't gotten around to it quite yet, but I will. I will see it. Richard. Hey, Buck, you really should consider setting up a fact checker site in the future. In the judgment of the truthfulness of statements, the fact checkers could issue something like one to five buck slaps based on how bad the lie is. Each slap could have a name. For example, five could be five could be the nuclear buck slap. I kind of like it, Richard. I just don't have the time right now to set up a website specifically devoted to knocking down all the lies that are out there. Bill, 
Forget Fortnite. If you do try a new video game, check out Tom Clancy's The Division 2. Play it out on the streets of Washington, D.C. in ruins after the collapse of the government following a terrorist attack on the U.S. P.S. Keep up the great work. Well, Bill, that sounds cool. I, I have not played video games in a very long time. The only video game I allow myself to play in recent years has been uh, chess. On I have a chess program on my phone because I do, I do enjoy chess. Uh, Mark writes, Buck, love the show. Need to set you straight on English language usage. The word is uh, cacophony, not cacac... Wait, what? Oh, caca- caca- <laughs> cacophony, not cacophony. Uh, it's a caca, not caca. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, correction, my friend. All righty. Next up here in our inbox, which remember, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's the way to do it. We got Jeffrey who writes, hey, Buck, greetings from Post Falls, Idaho, home of Buck Knives. So the last couple of days, you talked about Bernie, the socialist Sanders as a cuddly grandpa. Just wondering where you ever came up with the idea on earth that the old wrinkly curmudgeon from Vermont was cuddly. I'd rather hug a porcupine or cuddle with a king cobra. I'd disown my grandpa if he was anything like the burn. Do the Freedom Hunt a huge favor. Never refer to Bernie as cuddly. Love you, Buckman. Shields high and keep up the good fight. My beloved brother, you are the best. Jeff. Well, Jeff, you're the best and uh, you're my beloved brother. So thank you so much for writing in. And I, I agree with you on the Bernie thing. I'm just saying that's the way they try to they try to position him. You know, the the positioning the media created for Joe Biden was that he was kind of the the, the wild, loose cannon uncle that just shows up and says crazy things sometimes, but you got to love him anyway. And then it turned out that Joe Biden's actually a weird hair sniffer and a, and a definitely a, a bizarre guy who makes people uncomfortable. And with Bernie Sanders, you know, they're trying to say that he's the cuddly old grandpa. But, yeah, he's the cuddly old grandpa who honeymooned in the Soviet Union. All right. So he's a commie cuddly uh, grandpa. And I, I don't think he's anywhere near as as nice and as affable as he is presented to be. I just think that that's a construct of the media. Remember, what we've seen on display from this whole Russia collusion mess is still the power of the need of the media to come up with a construct, an idea, and then make it a reality through just repetition and, and the practices of propaganda. All right, we got through today, team. It has been a wild ride. Um, no collusion, no obstruction, a president exonerated. The fight's not over, my friends. We have a lot more ahead of us, and we know the 2020 election is already looming. But at least tomorrow it's Friday. Hopefully we'll get to just kick back, relax, and let the good times roll a bit. I will talk to you then. Shields high.